0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, one of my favourite adverts of recent times is the new one from McDonald's. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Raise your arches. Uh, There's me attempting to do uh, arch raising for anyone on YouTube. So sorry if you're listening on audio, you might have missed that. But anyway... I'm meeting up in this episode with Shaka Sabani, who is the global chief creative officer for Leo Burnett, who made the ad. Uh, She's one of the absolute legends of our industry. She's so creative and has got so much passion, not just for creativity, but also diversity inclusion as well. So in this episode, I'm catching up with Shaka to get her advice on um, how to be creative, how to make great work. We get into the craft of the ad as well and why it's been such such a success. And we also talk about the state of diversity and inclusion in our industry um she as a kind of prominent uh, mixed race lesbian as well has got a good point of view and a good perspective on it that I think we can all learn from so without further ado here's my conversation with Shaka Shaka Shivani welcome to the show hello darling how are you you're right? it's lovely to see you how Thank are you?
1: you i'm very well as i said to you a little earlier i'm coughing a lot so i'm so sorry i'm just getting over this bloody cold but apart from that i'm all good i'm very happy to be here to and uh have to have a chat
0: well let's start with congratulations so campaign just nominated you creative leader of the year
1: i know that was very nice that's always, nice isn't, isn't it? it it was very very lovely it was a very lovely surprise on all fronts genuinely we we went along as a crew we thought we we're gonna have a lovely evening uh we had some of our clients down there obviously you see lots of your pals and all the rest of it and uh, we're having a few drinks, but we thought oh, it would be nice. It's nice that we're in the running. That's very cool. Da da da. All the rest of it. Certainly not assumptive in any shape or form. And then uh, it got to strategy leader of the year, and Joshi's name was announced, and we were like, hmm? Oh. Uh, and then we went a bit crazy. And then about five minutes later, my name got announced, and we were like, hmm? what the hell is going on? And then. When they said agency, yeah, that was was the one. Oh, Um, that's
0: everyone, isn't it? That's lovely. Yeah,
1: that's the one that means the most. It's very, very lovely to have it individually, don't get me wrong. It's lovely, but actually the one that, yeah, that that has proper, proper meaning to it is because we've, yeah, this is a crew effort. We've been busting it up for a long time. So to get sort of a recognition of that was really, really lovely. And the agency was uh buzzing and our party was amazing and lots of sore heads and lost shoes and god knows what else but uh no it's very cool it's really really lovely
0: well I'm, i can't wait to talk to you about McDon- the mcdonald's campaign yeah. obviously that's that's really kind of present at the moment but before we do yeah. tell us where it all started for you why advertising how do you get into the industry yes. in the first place
1: it'd be great if i had a real plan and i could tell you a real story like i'd hatched it out i didn't at all and i, I never have had to be completely honest and um i've been very very lucky and sort of uh, things have i've worked bloody hard as well but um I I personally, in my experience, the best things have happened to me without having a plan. Again, without necessarily overthinking it, what I realise, if I can be grand enough or probably old enough now to look back at my career and look at why certain things have happened is I've always been driven by or have followed really amazing people and interesting people. So if I meet someone, not necessarily followed, but like I meet someone, if I'm lucky enough that they'll give me a job, I, I love being in awe of the people that I work with and that I'm gonna learn a lot from and i've had some incredible incredible masters and mistresses so that's sort of been my north star do you know what i mean without even knowing it i've met people oh my god you're fucking amazing versus sort of like oh that's a really cool brand or organization or whatever so the aim was never advertising i didn't even know really advertising exists i mean i knew obviously advertising existed but i didn't know it was an industry or anything i was just obsessed 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 with films and the only thing I knew that I wanted to be was a director. But only really because it was the only title I could really understand. You know, when you're looking at the credits and all the rest of it, and this is before the internet as we know it now, so you couldn't really go and research stuff in the same way. And if you did, I used to go to the BFI down on Stephen Street off Tottenham Court Road. And even there, like, production companies, and, blah, blah, and you'd look through stuff, and I'd be like, I still, like, what the fuck is a gaffer and a director of Sorry if I swear, by the way, I swear like a sailor you know, all of that sort of stuff. I didn't really know what it meant. And so I, I was lucky enough to find a course that was like 50% practical and 50% theory. And all I knew was I wanted to direct, I didn't even know what, I had no bloody clue. And I started off, yeah, as a, as a director, um, no contacts, no nothing, wrote my, you know, 200 letters, got 200 rejections, made phone calls on my first ever shitty mobile uh, that I got with coupons from Sainsbury's thanks very much the Dan call phone soup's cool and found it there was a studio in South London in Brixton called the Boiler House that had been set up by these two amazing guys Mikhail Geisler and Clive Howard one was an art director one was a special effects guy and they had uh, funding from Lambeth Council and it was a 30 by 30 water gantry studio so we did like stop motion water effects sort of like music video stuff and um, and pack shots for like commercials and stuff. And these boys just gave me my second sort of university and they were so generous. They gave me Super 8. They got me out shooting. And then from that, I started doing really, really low budget. When I say low budget, I mean literally no budget. Music videos, uh, that went up. And to give you the fast forwarded version from that, I got into comedy, did some sketch shows, ended up at Fox, at a kids network, uh, Fox Kids. And then at ITV, Got hired at ITV to set up ITV Creative with David Pemsel, one of the most instrumental people sort of in my life and career, who I adore to this day. And then from there, a big chunk of time there, then to Mother and then to Leo's. So, yeah, so that's the, that's the whistle-stop tour of it. Otherwise, I'll bore you senseless with all the, what's it called? But there's lots of adventures in every... Uh,
0: That's fascinating. I mean, take me back to ITV as well. So you set up the in-house creative team, production team. What do you learn about kind of the the art of making creative, presumably on a bit of a budget as well?
1: I've had this brilliant podcast with um, Chris Evans and Chris Evans was talking to Claudia Winkleman and they were talking about their days in the 90s on cable TV, you know, when like digital channels were first being set up. And they talked about it, they talked about how important it was to them because they were making. They were sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing. But they talked about it, Chris Evans talked about it like pilot hours, and I really dug that. And the thing that I am forever grateful for, forever grateful for, for my temperament, my, hopefully for anything that I've learned, was that directing and then television, so if, if I could be grand enough to sort of talk chapters, so directing's probably one chapter, then that merged into TV, but then TV and then advertising is I had my most fruitful period of making. We made so much. And obviously when you go into advertising, it's literally like the handbrake comes on and you're like, holy shit. And if I'm honest, as a young creative, I think I would have really struggled in an agency because I think it's really important that you're making. I think it's really, really important. One for your clients, but I think just for your own passion projects. So it was, oh my God, it was just one. I just, I've always felt very, um, This might sound a bit mushy and sentimental, but I sort of don't care, actually, because I mean it. I felt so lucky that I just was invited to the party. Every time I'd walk into that building, to to London Television Centre, down on the South Bank, I would get genuinely every day a little bristle of excitement and butterflies in my stomach, and I would go down to Artists Cafe, where all the studios were... I would smoke my cigarette, I would see the loose Women cast and this morning, and then the people who were coming in for Jonathan Ross. Obviously the weekends it was Ant and Dare, it was Graham Morton was was shot there. Have I got news for you? I'd go, I've, my first couple of weeks, I got to know all the chippy like that was it for me. Was yeah, great, you know, obviously all the management flaws and all the rest of it. But being in and around studios, uh, and it was just not just TV studios would then go to, you know, Black Island, wherever the hell we were going, with Shepparton or Pinewood, like. Just the smell of those places still to this day, it's like the biggest rush to my stomach. I'm the luckiest, luckiest girl in the world to have had those experiences, but to still feel like that when I not just think about those memories, but every day I've pinch me moments all the time. So anyway, like I said, that sounds a bit gushy and a bit sentimental, but I learned it was just again, it was like another university and every day i was learning something new i worked across all the genres which is great for me because i don't like repetition of working on the same thing over and over again uh that needs to be sort of um yeah a mixture of different things that we're working on and obviously itv works from everything from fact end to drama to sport current affairs you know it's like the whole gambit branding design production copy continuity It's the whole kit and caboodle and it was Awesome, and it all worked in this sort of mad chaotic way. And you always just had this incredible sense of the thing that you did, people gave a shit about in some shape or form. I used to love the fact that my grandmother and grandfather in law, going and seeing them, they lived in in Leicestershire. Like, we they you would quiet when Emmerdale and Coronation Street was on, like, you literally didn't say you didn't go make a cup of tea, or nothing. And I was literally just, I used to get drilled. Like, what's happening in this show? What's going on in that? What's going on in this? There was just a currency to it, above and beyond, like, just celebrities. And they're like, "What? Well, how always the common question? Like, what are an Deck like? Lovely, of course, which they are. And they're gorgeous. And I worked with them for a long time. They're fabulous. So it was um, it was incredible, working with commissioners, working with talent, working with agents, working with all different types of creative people, showrunners our directors, writers, designers, like I said, it was uh, honestly the best bloody university, the best university. And I met some incredible people who are still
0: firm, firm friends to this day. And uh, yeah, lucky girl. Well, talking about that, I, yeah. I did get a listener question from a Mr. Rupert Howe. Ah, <laughs> me old mucker. He says, if you can make a brilliant production for £10,000 at ITV, why are you spending so much money now? He's such a cheeky monkey. <laughs>
1: Do you know what? I I saw this brilliant
0: talk um, years ago,
1: about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, It was Mike Figgis, the director. And it was a time when, maybe a little longer ago than that, actually. But it was the time when everyone was, the big debate in production was around HD and whether HD was going to take off. So you either shot on film and you were a film purist on 35mm and 16mm, or you shot on Digibeta, or worse still, SPB, so was like, oh, sacrosanct. And remember when you watched telly back in the day, like you could see the soaps were shot on like Digi and then you'd look at films, oh, that's shown very, very grand. And the very beginning of kind of HD cameras, I remember Sony would go around and do all these like demos and stuff and they were trying to say, oh, you can shoot high high speed and it was like rubbish and there was, anyway, anyway the, the cameras weren't great at the time, at the very, very beginning. But like I said, there was this big raging debate of which one's better. And actually, I think this is a point. It's not about good or bad or better and worse. Mike Viggis talked about you choose your instrument depending on the story that you're trying to tell. So when he was directing Leaving Las Vegas and he wanted that sense of the atmosphere of addiction and kind of falling, your life falling apart. And he needed that intimacy. He needed to shoot on 13 mil. He needed that grittiness. He needed the depth of field, what he could do with the colors in the grade. And then when he was shooting something like Time Code, which was literally about four parallel stories, funnily enough, you know, when you've got a mag, a 100-foot mag on, that's only going to give you 10 minutes, you go to it and you shot it all on little PD150s because the tapes were uh, an hour and a half long. So he could shoot the entire film in one take. And that's the point. It's not about oh whether it's, an idea is £10,000 or whether an idea is £2 million. What are you trying to achieve? And what's the end result? If you want pancakes it costs a certain amount of money and pancakes are fucking brilliant and delicious. Amazing. You wouldn't need to go and spend a hundred thousand pounds on some pancakes. Whereas if you want something fancy schmancy and the taste of caviar and the richness of this and, and the look of that, it's going to cost more money. If it's got talent involved, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not as I love him cause he's cheeky and he's has trying to be controversial little minx. Um, it's not, I have no pleasure in just spending money for the sake of it. Uh, I like to think I'm very bloody responsible because I was brought up with no money and by a brilliant bloody mum who gave me an appreciation of the value of everything. And just because you've got it doesn't mean you need to go and spend it. But you have to be very honest about what you're trying to achieve in any field, uh, whether it's obviously what we do, creativity and production and ideas, or whether it's finance or whatever the hell, whatever it is, everything has a price attached to it. And you have to be honest about that and what you're trying to get to and, you know, not have champagne taste for beer money or the flip way around. And if money is a concern, there's always a way of being able to get to the be- I, I refuse to believe that it's like, oh, well, money means something's brilliant and not having money means something's shit. Absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. The antithesis of creativity but you have to be honest about what you're, what you're trying to achieve and what you need to get there. Makes so, so much sense. That. I'm not trying yeah. to be diplomatic. I genuinely No, no, no you're that. absolutely
0: yeah. right. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so you, look, you went from ITV where very hands-on. Uh, and Now you're global chief creative officer yeah. for a big network agency. Yeah. How different does that feel in terms of the actual job? Because presumably you're not involved in as much of the craft and on-the-ground decision-making. So so as yeah, Talk to me about the role of a, what, what's a global chief creative officer. Role feel like?
1: I don't think there's there. Well, I don't think there should be one definition of it. I think hopefully it's about how you turn up and what's important to you. Now, there's obviously there's certain parts of the job which are sort of um, they are different to when you are a pure pure maker. You are much more client facing. You're obviously I'm massively involved in new beers and working in different markets as well. Obviously uh, I'm based in London and the UK is still I'm still the CCO for the for the UK as well. But obviously got markets around the world. So those aren't necessarily things that I was involved with as a maker. But me as a person, I I sort of think about it like um, it's like if you're a chef. I I don't really think you can call yourself a chef if you don't still get into the kitchen. And um, not because you should. That's just who
0: I am. I'd lose my mind.
1: Oh, my God, love, you know I'd go crazy. This is what I'm wondering.
0: It's like, you know, you, no. surely you want to be also in the creative process, don't you? A hundred
1: percent. And and I think the difference is, is so and, – and I would like to think that sort of – like I said, it's sort of in your hands how much you do that and what's important to you, and it's massively important to me. Hopefully to keep me fresh and keep me learning and learning from our young'uns who are coming up, working with brilliant partners, I still get a buzz of working with, you know, new directors or new designers or whoever it is, or whether they're young or old or people just I haven't worked with. That for me is the definition of creativity is those butterflies you get in your stomach because you just, you see the electricity in the air and you're a part of it. And that's a beautiful thing about what we do. Certainly the beautiful thing, particularly when you come from production is you are a crew, literally it's all of you together. And that's where your strength comes from. I think one of the things, particularly um, as you get older, and probably a little bit of this is to do with obviously the change in in your role and stuff, but it's really important to me to give people autonomy. I thrived the most when I was allowed to be responsible and make decisions and stand by those. So it's a fine balance, I think, of staying involved and hopefully being helpful Um, and also selfishly getting something out of it yourself, like I said in the learning thing, but hopefully adding a little bit of a little 5% that might, you know, just with experience and stuff might take things in certain different directions. But at the same time, I felt, I personally, I think you start feeling a bit of a shift as you get a bit older in terms of my role is no longer about being in the spotlight myself. I think there's a period in your life in your 20s and your early 30s where it's about me, me, me. It's a massive part of my job now is to create hopefully the environment where people can be the best version of themselves creatively and just as human beings, it's not just about work, but also about opening doors and putting the spotlight on amazing talent that's coming. You know that feeling when you see someone and like they, they don't even know how good they are and they haven't even reached their peak. It's like a sportsman or a sportswoman and you're just like, holy shit, this is electric. And to be part of that, that's, that's just... No, that's that's. I so
0: resonate with what you said there. Actually, because I don't know whether it's an age thing, but I I genuinely get more excitement from other people's success now. I genuinely feel so happy for them, and kind of like you know. And I think uh, it's a weird thing, and maybe in my forties or whatever. But that I can really resonate with that. It's so satisfying to see
1: it probably has also some kind of correlation as well to sort of like basing like becoming a parent as well. Like so again, like the shift becomes about uh, the focus is on someone else and you wanting them to do really well. And I'm not saying that's the same relationship as you, you have at work. It's not as yeah. it's not infantilized like that. It's not a parent-child. But but hopefully, I think that's a beautiful thing about life is we have these different chapters, and our rhythms are different, yeah. and it doesn't mean that we're any less or any more. We just bring a slightly different flavour to the
0: table. So, anyway. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, talking of great creative work as well, I'm desperate to talk to you about uh, the McDonald's campaign. Yay!
1: Um, I could talk Maccas it, all day. I'm
0: sure, I know. I, I know. love I know. them. And look... Th- this, it really caught light, didn't it? I mean, look, I, again, sample of one, but. Yeah. It's by far the most read LinkedIn post I've ever done. When I when I shared the results of the campaign, yeah, quarter of a million man. people saw it. Oh, it was just like something. Cool. There was something about it, and yeah. what I thought was fascinating is, it's very unusual to have such industry acclaim and such kind of popular acclaim yeah. as well. Because sometimes in our industry, what excites us is the craft or the you know the event, you know, pushing boundaries that sort of thing. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. you can kind of look at what the audience like, and they're often very different. Yeah. But in this case, it was very it was very good. Um, what was also great about it i thought and again i'll show you some system one results in a minute is it did long-term brand building and it did activation it it was one of those things that did both right sell them the long-term dream and so the other thing i thought was amazing about it is you were selling burgers with no burgers in sight yeah that wasn't
1: bad was it
0: that's a trick right (laughs) but talk but talk to me about the where did the brief come from how did the idea come about i'd love to find about a bit more about the yeah the idea
1: so, uh, and I am going to sound gushy now, and I don't care about this at all. So, I I, I love McDonald's. I love McDonald's as a brand. Uh, always have done it as a kid. Uh, I worked at McDonald's um, when I was sixteen years old. Had a very fetching uniform. Uh, managed to get one. Star. Did you get to get a star? Oh, I got good. one star, well Yeah. Uh. I only stayed for a summer. It was in between. <laughs> it was in between my. I think I was doing my A levels. Yeah. So it was in between like college courses. But anyway, I've always obviously had a relationship with the brand. Uh, and then when I joined Leo's, was lucky enough to to start working on the brand in the UK and then, and then obviously globally as well. Uh, so that's, that's sort of a given the other part of it, which was, um, which I'd been told, uh, and then obviously you have to experience yourself as clients. It's always a, oh, it's such a strange word clients, but obviously that's the official term for it. They're more than clients. They're m- my friends and they are people that I respect and I genuinely adore and love. They are brilliant human beings. They, uh, just as human beings, first and foremost, Uh, Then as marketeers, so they're a joy to work with because they understand their brand inside out and back to front. They understand the DNA of their brand from a values and sensibilities point of view. I think that's, you know, our relationship goes over 30 years and there's a reason for that is because we share the same values and kind of like where we come from. So that's the foundation for any great work. I think firstly, I don't think you can ever get to that without a proper relationship that is baked in trust and love and generosity and we have that in bloody spades and there's genuinely not a time and I'm not saying this is some bloody thing do you know what I mean to sound sucky I don't care they're just Fucking great. So, that's the starting point. So, we've been on a journey, obviously, and uh, through all the stuff that happens in culture and society, and there are moments when, you know, the brand is sort of more popular and not blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And I think, uh, particularly over the past sort of four or five years, we've been, we felt like we've been on a real trajectory with the brand and finding, I don't know, maybe a different gear for it and a different level of confidence, never braggadoose, but sort of always under the sort of the North Star of kind of being confidently humble. Anyway... So again, I don't think there are just moments where you just fall upon it. I think it's all kind of incremental and you kind of are building to these things without really knowing it. We have a very clear comms model and a strategy that we know inside out, back to front. This piece of work came out of the affinity pillar, the love pillar which is always the trickiest one because it's around brand. So in one way you kind of go, oh my God, we can do anything. And then on the other hand, you're like, oh shit, like what's the thing that we're going to talk about? We had a platform that we launched last year around fancy McDonald's. So just the truth about, you know, there's always moments in life. And I think when we are on point with the brand we know where McDonald's sits in people's lives, which is never front and centre. There's never the arrogance of that. We're always in support and in the service. So all these amazing things happen in life. And every now and then, a little Macca's coming in here and there. It's always lovely. different It was always after swimming for me. Anyway, just as an aside. So we already had that platform and we were sort of on the second difficult album. And we had a great campaign that had gone out and, um, and had landed kind of the thought. And as always, I think with the best ideas, you can always do this in hindsight. You look at it and you go... Why don't we come up with that it's the most obvious simple thing in the world and it came from a very very simple truth the brief came from a very very simple truth which is an invitation to have a mcdonald's is so ubiquitous and part of our behavior and sort of culture that there's actually no need for words it, there's a there's a behavior for it there's a there's a physical kind of little act that you do which is this raising of the arches and then the brilliant creative who came up this guy called Gareth Butters, one of our creative directors, again, who makes it all look so simple. Then one, having had this thought off of the brief, then realised, obviously, the raising of your arches very helpfully. Uh, oh, what does it look like? Oh, it looks like the arches. And there it was, and it was born. And when you talk to him, and, and he's obviously far more eloquent on this because he really went into the bowels of this because he came up with the idea. He'll be, he's really honest. He just goes, I would love to tell you it's torturous. But he said, "It's is really simple. I just got to it, like read the insights, went right. That that's what the idea is. They're
0: the best ones, though. They're, They're just, the best just, ones. Aren't they, just instinctively right,
1: hundred yeah. percent. And then to your point about craft, it's about all of those small elements, all the little elements in one the script, so in that one piece of film that make the humor pop. You know, the partner that you. So he's a he's a massive fan of Edgar Wright.
0: We were lucky enough that he read the script straight away. You know, you got something you could great. tell it was Edgar Wright as well. Just the, oh, way, un, the way the way the scene unfolds and the, chore- the choreography being all lined up was it's very. Odd. Off yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. The hook, yeah. and that gives you massive confidence when you send it to a
1: director like that, and straight away they're like, "Yeah, we're interested." like oh, Fantastic! That's made us kind of feel good about this. Then all the surround sound stuff, and then yeah, and you, you said a really interesting thing. Obviously, the, the holy grail is you, you. It's great to have the praise of your peers, of course, but to be honest, like the only thing we care about is is audiences. I mean, that's it. That's all that matters. It's a lovely byproduct if your fellow gang kind of dig it, but that's not a reason to make work. Right. I think
0: Ever. I read a quote from you which I love, which is, I love the industry, but I don't do it for them. No. And and we have to remind ourselves of that, don't we? Which is, which is why I kind of love this so much because it, it got obviously critical acclaim amongst, you know, peer group and so on, but it worked very well, which... I want to talk about the craft because what I thought I'd do is um, show you the system one results here. Right. We'll do this live, everybody. Right. So if you're watching, you'll be able to see this, you know, live on video. Uh, if you're listening, you might be able to hear it as it play out. But there's a few craft points I wanted to ask you about because there's some real, real mastery in this, in the execution that I I, I wanted to kind of talk through. Which I think it's brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the uh, Test Your Ad Pro report. So we've picked office workers under the age of 35. Now, this was us sort of guessing because, you know, that's kind of where the scene is set sort of thing. So um, the reason I said uh, it long and short is um, what we do with the test is we we ask people how they feel, right? Because how you feel about it is more important than what you think because, you know, it's not an exam question. This is about emotion, right? And um, it scores uh, a very, very impressive four star, which puts in the top two or three percent of all ads. So Congratulations. What it also does is short term, what we call the spike rating, which is exceptional levels. So that's, that is how likely are people to go out and buy as a result of it, which it also does. Now, this is quite unusual to be doing both things, which is brilliant. So firstly, congratulations. I'm just going to whiz through to the what we call the face trace. Um, this is the emotion people feel as they're watching. Um, let me play this out. So hopefully uh, everyone will remind if you haven't seen it or you have seen it. And to be reminded, here it is. What I love about this, there's so many little touches in there that really make this work. And I just wanted to point two or three little things out because for everyone listening and watching, um, the first thing is, what this does amazingly is so what we see in the graph here is is the green is happiness uh, and the dark green is surprise you feel very and good. you just sustain and you feel it don't you just yeah. it, it, it's, it's unusual to get a sustained level of happiness because of the way the choreography is done the music the characters and so on it's brilliant now really fascinating thing here is that at the bottom we've got the branding so this is at what point do people understand it's mcdonald's the post-it note scene right it's and it kicks in it Almost like 80% of the audience, that's the moment. Yeah. And that's so interesting because you. this is back to my point about not showing burgers, right? Yeah. You did not need to show a burger for people to know where what the brand was, what yeah. it stood for, and so on. But a tiny little detail like the post-it note. Yeah. And even you've actually got about 20% of the audience recognised it from what the, the woman in the first scene is wearing, yeah. the yellow and the red. And is, is that something you know? I mean, is, is that something you've understood or is it just the brand has become you know, so familiar and iconic? Uh,
1: I would love us to be able to take all the credit for that, um, but I don't think we can. I think over the years and globally, obviously McDonald's is... I've read something once that it's in the top three most iconic logos i mean and i don't mean brand logos i mean logos as in i think there's sort of like the christian cross is number one and then there was something else number two and then it was the mcdonald's logo which is just mind-blowing and not surprising considering obviously the scale of the brand and i'm sure again with coca-cola certain brand nike exactly you know the swoosh etc so i think when we've got the heritage of that which is massively helpful and that it is so recognizable but i don't things like it's interesting when you say about you know the the colors of People's clothing and stuff like that. I, I I, think there are certain things you consider, and I think there are certain things you can over consider as well. And I think sometimes it can be a mistake to overthink it. And there has to be a purity to the story that you're telling. I don't really sound like a wanker, but there has yeah. to be an authenticity yeah. to the story that you're telling, and that has to drive it. And then, of course, there are ultimately, we're talking about a brand. We're, we're coming from the point of view of the brand. We have to, there's certain things that need to land. The reasons with the post it note in there was. It was. Re- it wasn't for a branding point of view. It was really, really important that there was something natural that gave a cue as to why the the invitation to a McDonald's. So you put the the logo on a post it note. As if you wouldn't have a, a bit of food around and then show like a pack bit of packaging that oh, would be fake on my burger. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally something. inauthentic. Yeah. It would have just absolutely ponged straight away. Of like, oh, they're trying to sell us something. Versus, no, this is just like okay, the day's a bit like this. Actually, what would cheer it up a bit? Oh, a lovely little trip to Macca's. Yeah. And then from that, then obviously everything else falls into place. But things like the cues of, of when you say about the the clothes, I think that's just a, it's not just a happy accident, but it's, you know, I think we've all seen certain brands can really over-index on that. And then, you know, like the color of their brand is red and everyone is wearing red. And it's like, people aren't stupid. You just, the suspension of disbelief just falls to the wayside and people just know they're being sold to. And the minute you do that, like, it's just off-putting. Whereas I think if you turn up in the most generous and true and authentic way, what's the role of McDonald's in our lives, hopefully to sort of just give a little moment of feel good, a tiny little moment of feel good every now and then. So if you stay there and in the right place and have the right level of humility and confidence, that and you tell your stories with that lens of authenticity, then I think people will come along the ride. And that graph is amazing. I don't think I was going to say that about a graph, but, you know, <laughs> yes. ultimately you said exactly the right thing. You know, we create work, uh, and the only thing that we can gauge it by is feelings that we're trying to create a feeling and we want people to react to it in some way and ultimately with the brands we work with and particularly with mcdonald's the reaction is happiness
0: and joy what's what's lovely about this i think part of the reason for for the graph is that you've got this scene unfolding that just builds and builds and builds so you, you, your attention's caught very early on yeah. and then and then you just want to follow it through and 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 the and the glances between people and the yeah. walking past the meetings the and casting the, the, exactly. The the casting's yeah. brilliant, the acting's brilliant, and, and it's the way the scene unfolds. And then you overlay the music, yeah. which just you know gets you I mean music is so powerful, isn't yeah. it? And that just, you know, perfectly complements the whole whole action as it unfolds.
1: hundred percent. And obviously, as as we said, like when you have the mastery of someone like Edgar Wright, who every frame is considered and. All the performances are on point. The casting is amazing. Eyebrow casting—I mean, who the hell would have thought that that would be a part of your day to day? That's what I love about what we do. Um, but there's not a frame. Do you wasted. have like?
0: A, you actually have a, a, a eyebrow raise casting? Like, well, yeah. I mean, that was obviously pivotal. If you can't yeah.
1: raise your—some people can't do it, by the way. Raise well, your eyebrows. A, a bit breathe.
0: too much Botox, always.
1: No, not that. I can't raise my eyebrows that high. Not—I haven't had any Botox, but I just—it's it's just not very—it's not very dramatic. Yeah, it's quite boring the way I do it. The main lady with the the, the red hair. She's got the most killer eyebrows I've ever seen. Like the most expressive things ever. And then my personal favourite part is the guy with the mop. He just, it always makes me giggle with his little gladiatorial. Uh, scream up to the to the sky. That was his
0: moment, wasn't it? He made, it was t- like, like, it's the most crazy it. thing in the world. Yeah. But yeah, I'm glad that people dug it so much. Did people start copying? Because it, it, it's a very good of co- Obviously, Mackey D's is kind of a cultural thing, isn't it? Yeah. Have people picked this up as a, as a eyebrow raise in like, Have you, social media type, and stuff like
1: that? Uh, all you need to do is type in uh, raise your arches McDonald's into TikTok. Yeah. And there are thousands, wow. thousands. And this is the this is the thing, again, it's like, Uh, when there's an idea that you're not crowbarring down people's throats, they just want to pick up on it and want to have a bit of a laugh with it. So one of the best things that you see is there's loads of crew members who've done it in their restaurants and they've put something together with like their pals and they're walking around the restaurant and they're doing the raised eyebrows and stuff like that. But there's just loads and loads of customers uh, who have put on all the filters, they're daft, they're really exaggerated and stuff. It's just a lot of laugh. It's just you know what I mean. It's just a bit of shits and giggles for right. for the fun of it, and that's what we're about.
0: It's and it kind of weird, of sense back to our friend Rupert. It kind of feels a bit tango esque doesn't it? The whole slap yeah. kind of thing in you know, a weird sense of creating a. Oh, something don't that give gets, him another reason know, to comment, talk about exactly. tango. No go. joking, it's a, an
1: incredible <laughs> piece of work. So yeah, I mean, if we ever get close to something as classic as that, then we'll be very
0: <laughs> very happy. Yeah, yeah man, something. absolutely. And is is this a one off, or are you planning more? eyebrow-raising, arch-raising?
1: No, it's, it's it's not a one-off. That would, that would be, I think, a, a bit of lunacy if we hit on something like this and um, thought that this was the only way we could have fun with it. As always, I think when you're thinking about the next step, you again, you can't overthink it because it, you can get sort of stuck in, oh, is it going to be as good? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? Right to the the clarity and the purity of the idea and the insight, and I think we will be good. So I've actually seen the work. Yes, it's very exciting. And uh, fingers crossed, yeah, we will be making... The next part of this in the next couple of months. Oh, yeah. you're teasing us now. Yeah, you're yeah. You're teasing yeah. us, teasing I can't, us. I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah. But it's going to be good. Well, I hope so. I hope. Anyway, we'll do our best.
0: That's very exciting. Well, ladies and gentlemen, watch this space, you yeah, know, exactly. see what comes. But it's brilliant. Amazing. I wanted just to pivot a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about, about diversity in the industry yes. as well, because I know you're very passionate on it. And uh, we've collaborated a few times on the Feeling Scene Project with ITV and, and, and Wise Up, looking at older demographics. What's your What's your take on how much the industry's done in this space and how much it's got to do? Um. So, I, well, so unsurprisingly, um, there's still shitloads to do. I don't think that's just
1: about advertising. I think pretty much all major industries have still got a long way to go. I'm sure that, that well, not I'm sure, but I really hope the same conversations are happening in finance. I hope they're happening in industry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a long way to go. And there's on a lot of really basic so before looking at the statistics which are still obviously fucking woeful. Let's be really really clear. Like there's no we can't mince our words about this. I've got a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old daughter, and when they were born, I remember maybe very naively, not maybe, definitely very naively thinking they were going to, in 20 years time, enter a very different workforce than the one that I had entered. And uh, very slowly, uh, I've had the realisation that it's not actually going to be that different. It's different in a number of ways and really good positive changes, but it's not, there are, we are going to have had, we are going to experience very similar experiences as mothers and daughters. And I really didn't want them to have certain experiences. And the fact for me personally as a brown queer woman, when I still look around and try and see my representation, I see barely anyone. I do think advertising is behind the rest of the creative industries that I've worked in. And I'm not saying for one second that television and production have nailed it. Not at all. There's still massive discrepancies in terms of ageism, what people are earning by gender in front of the camera, behind the camera, all of that stuff. hundred percent. But uh in my humble opinion, uh, when I came into advertising a lot later, as, as you said, um, only 10 years ago, and I was really shocked, really, really shocked at just what I saw. So forget, again, the statistics, just walking around the hallways and who you see and what you see is just not reflective of my world or it's not reflective of the world that we live in. And if we want to make work, we talk about authenticity a lot. If we want all the best work is authentic and it is written to reflect stories that are written by people who fucking experience those stories. I do not need to have love told to me by one group of society and it being usually privileged and white and male. I love white males, even if they have privilege. But it's not the only voice I want to hear. I want to hear all of the voices. If we just rely on grassroots, it is going to take forever. So it takes more effort and more time i do not have the answers i am so desperate and need the brains of much cleverer people than me because i know that when we all get together we'll do some we'll do things a lot faster and i know this is is a bit it's not strange to say I, i don't think the pandemic as horrific as it was showed that in the face of the biggest tragedies and the worst times what this incredible human race can do when it needs to. So I can't buy the fact that, oh, it's gonna take another decade or two decades. Yeah. Fuck right off, not you, sir. But <laughs> anyone who says that, it's rubbish. But it it for it to change at the rate that we need it to, it needs to be of the same importance, literally the same importance in our bones, in our DNA, as new business, as the survival of our businesses. Because it is actually imperative to the survival of our businesses. When advertising or communications or marketing feels inauthentic, why do you think that is? It's not about, oh, we're not going in these channels. We don't know how to gravitate towards Gen Z because you're not reflective of that bloody audience. You're not telling those stories. You're not, it doesn't come from the heart and it doesn't come from the head of, and we're not learning. Anyway, I could rant on about it forever. I try to stay optimistic. I can get really frustrated and then I get frustrated myself because I feel like I should be doing more. Um, Like I said, I don't have the answers. I do know that if it's genuinely as important for all of us, genuinely and i appreciate that it's difficult for it to be as important if your footprint is the main footprint of the world and that you walk through the world quite easily and you don't know what it's like not to walk through the world as easily and that's the case for a lot of us i get it but it's
0: not an excuse i think i think that's why that kind of system when we we did the feeling scene report actually was just to show people that it it, it isn't the risk that they might feel it is that actually you know telling one person's story i mean this is one of the profound insights I've, i've really struck me when we're doing the research is that if you tell one person's story really well it's not like you're leaving everyone else out because the whole power of storytelling and advertising is you see into someone else's world and that and that's really powerful and so you know i mean i remember um i was working with addie rawcliffe over at itv and we both we sat down together and um we were looking at a nicad it had a a a black pregnant woman in it and she was quite emotional going i don't think i've seen a black pregnant woman in an ad before not particularly not one as you know you know uh, powerful and as emotive as that and i think tingles down my spine as well so it's not as if when it's done well you know with great diverse advertising it's not a divisive thing actually it was, it was, we ended up with the kind of you know how diverse advertising unites us yeah. kind of thing because Absolutely. actually done well it's a really it actually uh, this is where you need to sort of get off social media a bit because yeah. you know you can really get the wrong the wrong idea but we certainly tried with feeling seen to give people the the case, for, not you shouldn't need to do that. I know you shouldn't need to do the case for yeah. it. You know I mean, it, it, we should be beyond that point. But what we're trying to do is just go, look, it's the right thing to do. But also it's the effective thing to do. And and, and and when people realise we, we it's a bit cheap, we call it diversity dividend. But what you see is you see the audience reflected. You just you saw this happiness on on your McDonald's ad. What you see is more happiness. Yeah. And what's interesting is actually when we go behind the numbers, it's everyone feels the same. Like the story arc will be the same for everybody. But when you're represented, you feel the intensity of the emotions greater, and 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 that's really powerful. You can just see the you know, emotion, emotion more intense. So, it, I mean, for me, and, and what we tried to do with you know with the report and like we wise up looking at old, older generations as well, mm-hmm. is just showcase that work and give people the well. First is the confidence, but secondly, just to go look, this, it can be done. Yeah, so I'm I'm hoping I, you know, I know I know there's there's lots to be done, but I'm hoping slowly. But and what I'm also hoping is we start to heroes some of those members of society i mean we, we did one uh, we did a session on itv looking at disability i can't tell you i was humbled i mean I know it sounds a bit but i was i what i realized in that moment is oh my god if anyone has got a challenge like just listening to you know disabled people talking about their day or how they get to a meeting or how they you know yeah. i was just oh my god if, if i think i've got any problems in, yeah. in fact i just i'd had a car accident it's not a sort of bike accident at christmas and I was, I was a bit limited in my movement at the time so i think i thought i'm not even going to mention it you yeah, know what i mean because yeah. like just listening to what they go through and then, and then i thought about advertising and thought i can name on one hand right the number of times i've seen an advert with a disabled person in it mm. you know there, there, there are a few i mean maltesers do actually good yeah. did a great job for you about three years ago on it but, you know, I think there are some groups there that we, we need to elevate and need to kind of, you know... Yeah, 100%.
1: But, I mean, it's... Um, I know you weren't saying it for that, for that reason, but, you know, it's tragic that we can name one or two campaigns. Yeah. More importantly, who are the people that you work with and have wor- work in advertising who are from those communities? Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's not about blame and it's not about making people feel bad. But, like I said, unless this becomes truly the priority the priority for all of us allies people who are from those minority groups and we come up hopefully with some different solutions i don't know what they are necessarily we we do need to do more and of course as you said it makes business sense but we talk a lot about um we want to impact culture and you know we have a conscience well stop fucking talking about it and do something about it you know what i mean and uh Uh, as I said, it it has to come from the heart. This stuff has to be important to you for the right reasons. And it is for the majority of people. I just, yeah, (laughs) every single put, you know, the idea that these stories are all so different. Of course they are. There are massive nuances in our experiences, of course. But at the end of the day, we are all human beings. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. And we want to have a sense of belonging. And if we can, in any shape or form, make people feel represented and seen and heard and increase empathy and understanding for other people's stories. So that's not a bad thing that we can do within what we do as an industry. That has to be a fucking good thing. And we can do it. It's all in our hands. And we we start talking about, oh, it means we're politicizing stuff. We're not fucking politicizing anything know. at all. You know, queer stories are not politicized. They don't all have to be about coming out. Uh, the, the biggest goal for me is when there isn't a need for a bloody label and I don't have to say I'm queer or whatever the hell I am. Well, that nobody does. And anyway, I could hang on about it. Well, check out the
0: That is the perfect peak end, actually. And and I think (laughs) congratulations, by the way, on McDonald's work. And the power, I mean, we talk about changing culture, right? But, you know, what what you've done with McDonald's work certainly does that. So hopefully a lot more to come. And, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thanks, uh, man. Sorry for coughing all over the place.
1: I hope (laughs) none of you go down
0: with this thing. If you do, I (laughs) apologise and I'll send you (laughs) some lockets. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks, darling. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to listen or watch more episodes like this, please do subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to check out my YouTube channel, uh, head over to Uncensored CMO over on YouTube. And if you'd like to leave me a review, please do, remembering that five is the score uh, to go for. But thank you for following. And uh, if you want to contact me, I'm over on LinkedIn at John Evans or on Twitter at Uncensored CMO. See you next time.